Hi, we're Eleanor and Carrie. We're the hosts of the Good Robot Podcast, and join us as we ask the experts: What is good technology? Is it even possible? And what does feminism have to bring to this conversation? If you want to learn more about today's topic, head over to our website, where we've got a full transcript of the episode and a specially curated reading list with work by or picked by our experts. But until then, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Today, we're talking to Dr. Leonie Tanzer, a lecturer at University College London in international security and emerging technologies. We discuss why bad behavior online can still be violent, even if it's legal. How to find the perfect balance between online safety and security, two very different things, so that we can identify bad actors, but also protect people's privacy. And how to improve threat modeling to account for and envision scenarios where things go wrong in unintended uses of technologies. We hope you enjoy the show. As a content warning, we want to let you know that this episode includes discussions of domestic violence and coercive control. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Could you please introduce yourself? Tell us a bit about what you do and what brings you specifically to the topic of feminism, gender and technology. Yeah, uh, my name is Dr. Leonie Tanzer. I'm a lecturer in international security and emerging technologies at University College London. And I believe the topic of feminism and gender and technology relates to my work in this space. I'm particularly interested in the intersection of gender, security and technology and I've been keen about this topic probably already since I'm 16, 17. That's when I started to become very interested in gender equality issues because I realized, well, boys were treated quite differently to girls like myself. And I think after my interest in gender and equality issues and feminist issues, I started to become more interested in technology issues after I took a summer school with Professor Nicholas Forgo a couple of years into my university degree and was opened up to issues around privacy and safety and security that really blew my mind. And I saw immediately the connections between the importance of making sure that technology is safe and secure and gender and feminist issues. Our podcast is called The Good Robot. And with this in mind, we'd like to ask you, what good technology means to you? Can technology ever be good? You know, that's a very interesting question because the term good is a normative word and and it depends on good for whom. I certainly believe that there is something like good, but what I understand as good and useful and helpful and beneficial might be different to what some other people believe as being good. But I just genuinely think that we could try our best to make more secure, safe and privacy aware technology that has the human rather than, for example, economic values in mind. And I think that's perhaps the ground rule for good in my regard. I think good has to do with making technology human centered, making it focused on the needs of the individual or the society. And even society is a very broad concept here, but like for the specific community that you're designing a system, a device for. And I think that's really what I think good technology is, having a specific user group in mind, but with this not making it specific to white heterosexual men, 
but potentially applicable to a very unique group that may have other needs beyond what an able-bodied person with a lot of privilege might have in mind. And I think that's what good technology is, designing for a specific user group with their interests in mind. Fantastic. I'd love to hear a little bit more about this. Uh, What kinds of harms or problems can emerge from not taking into account the specific needs of a particular user group? Gosh, there's dozens of harms that I can think of. I mean, you mentioned racism and sexism. I think these are the ones that we hear a lot about in the news today, and they're extremely harmful to so many groups and communities on this planet. But I think there's also other social categories that we need to discuss more carefully. I think one term that is you know, heavily contested and potentially even in the UK context, a bit like perceived negatively is class, you know, social class is something I think is really important when it comes to the accessibility and usability of technologies. Who has the opportunity to purchase certain devices, but also the knowledge and time to engage with these devices to make sure that they're safe and secure. I think that is something I think is really important and unfortunately is not discussed enough at this moment of time. The other thing I think about when it comes to harm is also an able-bodied person, you know, thinking about like people with speech recognition problems, people with an accent. I mean, you can hear it from my own uh, way of speaking. I have not the perfect English as of now. I'm working very hard on it. But nevertheless, my Amazon Echo continuously does not understand me asking for certain requests. So I really think it's important to consider like the diversity of people may it be about their gender, their ethnicity, their language, their sexuality, but also their class. And so I think That is something where harm can really come into play when these categories are ignored or simply become oblivious because we treat all people the same. But I think one particular one I want to hone in on is actually economic harm. I think, you know, one thing we are often focused on is economic harm because we are considering it as a crime. You know, there's prosecutions. But I think there is some value to discuss both illegal forms of harms where we already have legislation against such as cybercrime, but also what is now incredibly uh, important is to talk about things that are perhaps not yet illegal, but are harmful nevertheless. So in the UK, we have discussions around this with regards to the online harms white paper. And I know that the communities that work in this space, that study this space, are absolutely torn apart on the question of, you know, what's illegal, what's legal, and that we can't regulate things that are harmful, but legal. And I think, you know, that just showcased the necessity to broaden our horizon of what's okay and what's not okay. And okay, again, is your normative question, but potentially, you know, what we have defined as illegal has transformed over years and decades and centuries as well. And perhaps we need to broaden our understanding in this regard as well in the future. That's something I have been thinking of for a while, but I think it's important in the conversation around harm, that harm does not necessarily mean something is automatically illegal because it can be legal, but harmful nevertheless. I can give a concrete example if that's useful. With this regard, for example, I'm working a lot on regards to intimate partner violence and technology. 
And unfortunately, with the support organizations that we're working with, with the victims and survivors that we're working with, many of them are challenged by the fact that what they experience is not illegal necessarily. So, for example, a partner, you know, posting something on Facebook that is absolutely legitimate, like a picture of a dog or simply an MP3 of a certain kind of music recording. You know, you can share that content, but it has a very harmful or potentially harmful meaning to the person that is on the receiving end. So how are we going to deal with that? You know, a technologist probably says, just block that person, ignore it. And of course, that that is one avenue to, to deal with this. But in the context of a prosecution, I think also these elements need to be taken into account by a judge to say this person deliberately tries to create an environment which makes it difficult for the victim and survivor to, for example, use this platform or be freely acting online. And I think while it's not illegal to post a picture of a dog or an MP3 uh, file, I think it, 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 it is important to contextualize these things more than we have done in the past. Absolutely. Thank you so much for all those really different insightful points and examples. I think it's particularly illuminating to hear about the work that you do on IPV and new and emerging technologies, which is something that, you know, personally really, really concerns me. Uh, and you've mentioned that you come from a background in international security. And something you mentioned a lot is this idea of like safe and secure technology. And so could you explain a little bit, uh, what do you mean by the term safe and secure? And how do those concepts play out in your work? That's a really, really good question. I think so for anyone who potentially has already detected it, I have a German-speaking accent. Now, the fascinating thing is, in German, safety and security does not exist. It's just one term, which probably the best way to describe it is security. Now, since I have worked more in the English language, uh, I, I, I really love the fact that we have ways to differentiate between safety and security. And for those unfamiliar with the difference, I always give the example of a door, you know, for as security purposes, we should lock those doors all the time. We don't want an intruder to come in, right? But for safety purposes, all these doors should be open all the time because if there's a fire or if there's something happening inside, all people or individuals should be able to leave, for example, the house immediately. And you can see that these both concepts are extremely, you know, exclusionary. They don't necessarily work together. And that's what I like about the English language here of having a word to describe these differences, which does not really necessarily work like that in German. So what I encounter in my work is day to day these discrepancies that don't work together. Because we may think that a certain functionality, a certain feature is beneficial for a security purpose, such as, for example, locking things or making things harder to access or making things harder to trace, for example. But for safety purposes, it is really important sometimes to have these traces and those bits of information that, for example, victims of intimate partner abuse can use in prosecution purposes. So... I think I encountered day-to-day dilemma of like these two concepts and, and then bringing even privacy into the mix makes it even harder because, you know, it, 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 it gives this additional level of making sure that individual information of all the people that are involved in a system is guaranteed. But sometimes we want perhaps to uncover someone who is harmful in a situation and, and reveal their uh, identity which is not possible because we have ensured those privacy settings are in place. 
And to this very day, I think we haven't found a very good solution of how to make a good measure of all these ingredients to to, to, to make it nearly like a shake and 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 think about it as as a cocktail. We haven't found the perfect uh, mix yet, but I do think it is essential that we have a discussion around how much inter- how much safety, how much security, how much privacy is needed for let's say certain groups of communities, and also allow for different levels of safety, security, and privacy for high-risk individuals as well. And I think the fact, coming back to the original question, that we just have kind of this standard template of a user in mind means that we often forget that we need to ensure that different settings and features should be applicable to different individuals differently. You've applied feminist methods and ideas to your work in in lots of ways. So what does feminism mean to you? And has your relationship with feminism evolved over time? Absolutely. I would say I, you know, I, I, I teach a course at UCL called Gender and Tech. And I always laugh in the first term about my course because I feel like it's really easy to to give this idea of feminism as this like kind of all-encompassing concept but it's not and I often ask my students at the start of the term do you consider yourself a feminist and you know I would say this year 50-50 percent of students were like yes I am and all the, the rest of the grass was not and that changed by the end of the term I hope not to the negative to because of my course, but nevertheless, uh, I think it's important to discuss feminism as not one single thing. Initially started off, I would say, as a very much uh, Marxist uh, feminist, but I think it's really important to account for aspects around like, you know, uh, class and the interrelationship with gender and how they play out together. But I would say I've moved on and become more interested in other elements as well, where, you know, I, I nearly hear I say it, perhaps one, one, one can nearly call it neoliberal feminist, where you talk about things about equality in our workplace and such, such, where it's no longer just about smashing the, the system, but actually kind of working in it when you have to. So I would say where I'm situated now, I'm not yet clearly sure. I certainly see the roots that I have and where I've come to. But for me, feminism is a simple understanding of ensuring that all genders, and I'm really important here, not just women and men, but all other forms of genders that are there, have a form of equal representation and unequal opportunities in the workplace, in the public, anywhere that is important. And I think that's kind of what feminism boils down to me. But that then, you know, is important to contextualize that it's different for different people. So if you if you talk, I'm a white privileged woman with from Central Europe. So, you know, the realities that I'm exposed to that I feel on a day to day basis are completely different than to, for example, some of my students that may have come from the global south maybe uh, having, you know, a huge, you know, discrepancy with regards to access to abilities, etc. And like what they're probably experienced feminists to be will be very different to me and my history and my experiences. Nevertheless, I think what I think we all can agree on is that it's important that we all have a justice, that we all have equality and that we're all treated fairly. And I think that's really what it boils down to. Sometimes things in the world of technology are complicated and need careful explaining. Sometimes they just need a little hard truth. 
I don't think anyone is going to buy a banana with crypto at any point in the foreseeable future. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, the host of Slate's What Next TBD, your clear-eyed guide to technology, power, and the future. Friday and Sunday, wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to ask you about how feminism plays out in very different ways in all of your different work, all of your publications. Can you give us some examples of how you explore feminist theory or methods in different ways in your work? I think one of the most important texts I read and and one of the most important experiences I had during my university time was, you know, um, thinking about situatedness and thinking about like, your position when you write something, when you research something. And I think that is the core understanding I took away from feminist theory for me, that when I write something, I make clear of who is writing it and from what standpoint I'm writing it. So standpoint theory is a really important uh, theoretical approach for me as well. I probably make it not very explicit in my publication, but I do very considerate of like having limitation sections accounting for my positionality and being like transparent about like how from what standpoint I'm writing off uh, and about. And I think that's something that um, you know I think we all need to take account because when I read a paper, let's be honest, most of us or read an article or anything, you read it and you immediately envision what that person is like and probably what their experiences are. And I think instead of having someone having to interpret this, just make it explicit and say, okay, I'm writing this, you know, like from that perspective, I'm coming to this as an outsider often. And and I think that's also something important to make clear in a text, because when you, for example, not are not, you know, uh, a black woman and writing about, let's say, black feminism, you know, your words and your analysis may come to different conclusions than if you were. And it's important to reflect upon that. So I think that's something I I, I, I try and aspire to do. I, I certainly could do better, but I think there's also this clash with the expectation of the scholarly discourse of how much you write about I and how much you bring yourself as an individual into your research. I think there's more openness in certain pockets of academia where it's accepted, but I say that with the caveat that I'm also working a lot like kind of in 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 areas in engineering where this is like probably still rather odd and I think nevertheless it's important to make this transparent uh, at least in your public communication with, with your work so I think that is something where I bring in feminist perspectives in addition to that I think I'm just so concerned always to put a gender lens on anything I do to the detriment of, 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 of being not always very liked, even with some of my colleagues, probably. But I think, you know, of course, I could bring in other categories such as class, you know, uh, ethnicity, anything like that. But again, because of where I am and who I am, gender is something that just comes immediately to my attention. And I can see immediately like things playing out differently than if I were not the person who I am. So gender is something that like immediately when I look at even a technology pops out and I think immediately, okay, why could it be that this is probably more user-friendly to uh, you know, certain type of user than another? And that's that's probably something why I'm drawn to this category because it's just it's it's there's no way I cannot see it, if that makes sense. 
Timnit Gebru has said that there's still a strong feeling in computer science that if you're an activist, you can't be a computer scientist because computer science requires neutrality. And we were speaking last week with Sneha Ravenu, who is this fantastic young activist, and she said that Gen Z will produce a new generation of ethical developers, which is quite an exciting idea. And I was wondering, as someone who teaches and also interacts with younger generations, do you think that activism will relate to computer science differently for younger computer scientists? How might the relationship between activism and computer science evolve in the future? That's a really, really good question. Um, I mean, I have pondered about my role as activist in, in the scholarly discourse for a very long time, because I would say, as I said earlier, I started off like in a socialist Marxist environment and then probably started my career in academia. So my roots are in activism, but I have ended up in a scholarly discourse. So here I say it and make it public. <laughs> but with computer science, I think it's this, I wouldn't even say it's, you know, limited to computer science. This idea of neutrality, of objectivity is enshrined in all academic disciplines with a few exceptions. And I think I have no clear answer to it. I think we need to navigate a very, very thin line. And I'm saying this because I also am very interested in questions around scientific advice. So how is the scholarly community also helping to make decisions and evidence-based decisions about policy interventions? I mean, what better time to talk about this than during a global pandemic? But does that mean it's it's unacceptable or it's too close to activism? I don't know. I think it depends on the discipline. I mean, it's easier to to, to you know, in a social science discipline to to make this argument than, for example, in maths potentially. Not to say that maths is neutral either. Thank you so much. It's really interesting to hear you think through these kinds of thoughts and questions because I do feel like as feminist scholars, we're often asked to bring forward kind of such strong justifications of why this like very outwards focused work and why this work, which does have an agenda and a rationale, you know, is scholarly work as well. And I feel like destabilizing that kind of binary between scholarship and activism is kind of, I feel like always been such an important project to feminist scholarship and work. Um, is one reason why, you know, I think Eleanor and I both really love it and are so invested in it. Yeah. And also all the things you were saying about uh, sort of the perception of neutrality and the way in which feminist perspectives and scholarship has also, you know, so fundamentally been challenging that, you know, I find you really resonates with me. And it also reminds me of something you were saying, though, in your come on your previous answers around that interesting distinction you were drawing between security and safety and privacy. And I'm interested in how certain technologies that are perceived to be neutral and that, you know, things like, for example, technologies that are used to lock a door, things like that, that are seen as improving security can get repurposed in really dangerous ways, often in quite gendered ways. I was wondering, would you mind talking a bit about the secondary uses of some of these new technologies and the kinds of harms or problems that they can pose in relation to things like IPV or other like social harms and issues? Absolutely. I think I should start by saying, you know, technology is not neutral. Ta-da. And, and what I mean with that is every technology is dual use. Now, what I mean, what I mean with dual use is, you know, it has a certain type of purpose that was envisioned with, with the designers and, and, uh, the, the company that like sells it, but it may be rep 
you know, misused or uh, reproduced or, 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 you know, used in a different context by another person. Even simple examples, you know, you may want to use your Xbox to, I don't know, harvest Bitcoin. That was not what the Xbox developers had in mind, but you end up doing it nevertheless and it works. So dual use here does not mean necessarily dual in terms of positive and negative. It just means it has multiple purposes. And I think the same applies to this context of like, you know, the smart lock or the smart doorbell, whatever you want to call it. If it is installed for a certain type of purpose in a certain type of environment, you know, it exactly fulfills the goals and intentions that the designers had in mind that if I'm not at home and my Amazon delivery comes that I can let them in or I can at least like accept the delivery order. If that's, you know, the perfect environment that again, perfect in regards to what the developers had in mind. But I think, and that makes it so difficult to, to account for all the different circumstances under which technologies will and are used. There will be situations where it is not going to be, you know, the, this perfect environment that you had in mind as developer. And I think it's important for purposes of what we normally refer to threat modeling to account for as many of these as possible and envision scenarios where some things are going wrong. And I wonder then, like, how would you design things differently or what functionalities would you perhaps amend, change, or perhaps even omit as a consequence of these different threat models that you play through? And a core critique of our research project at UCL, the gender and IoT project, is that we consider most threat models to be about external actors, with external being, you know, a person that is not in this perfect environment and tries to invade this perfect environment. But as any intimate partner violence scholar, any gender studies scholar, any criminologist will tell you, you know, the perfect household does not exist. And there is the domestic environment is not all happy and loving. And there's often, you know, fights, there's, there's harm, there's, there's harassment and there's violence. And so it's important to also account for the internal threat actors that sit within your own system. And technologists do that. They think about uh, internal threat actors, but then they are employees. And employees are different because you have different like mechanisms to act against them because they're not on the same status as, for example, the employer. Whereas in a domestic abuse environment, we do not want to have these discrepancies and authority levels. And that's something then like a designer has to account for that not everybody is, has the same abilities and the same access often to the systems as they envisioned them in the first place to be and to have. So basically, I think it's important that we model different scenarios and account for them and make a decision nearly like you do when it comes to ethics application, for example, in a research environment. I'm currently reading a lot of them. And I'm always wondering if our students or anyone who applies for ethics are thinking about all the scenarios that could go wrong. And that's what an ethics application should be about. And I think that's what threat modeling in the industry should be about, thinking about all the different scenarios. And if you're struggling to envision those because, you know, you're a white heterosexual man, then bring on board other people that have different experiences, because that's the only way we can envision all these different avenues. A huge thank you really from Eleanor and I uh, for appearing on the podcast. I've certainly learned a whole lot and I'm sure that Alice's will as well. This episode was made possible thanks to our generous funder, Christina Gould. 
It was written and produced by Dr. Eleanor Drage and Dr. Kerry Mackereth and edited by Laura Zamulianitan.